What would you do with your life if you knew you couldn't fail? If you had all the money, all the time, all the knowledge, all the resources that you needed, what would you do with your life if you simply knew that anything was possible for you? My name is Christina Carlson, founder of global Swedish design and inspiration brand Dream Life and author of the book Your Dream Life Starts Here. And I love exploring these sorts of questions to inspire people like you to chase your own dream life, whatever that means for you. Many years ago, I wrote down a dream on paper that would one day bring Swedish design to the world and create beautiful, inspiring and meaningful products that would bring sparks of joy into the everyday lives of millions. Now that I have achieved that dream, I want to leverage everything I've learned to help you dream big and to create a global movement to inspire 101 million people to transform their lives and transform the world in return. Each episode will dive deep into the power of dreaming and share real insights and practical ideas that you can use immediately to build a dream life of your own, whatever that means for you. Hi there, and welcome back to another episode. Today's guest is Melanie Schilling, and she is an Australian specialist in human behavior and performance. She has built a 20-year career as a therapist, business consultant, and leadership coach for high-performing people. A thought leader in confidence and courage, Mel draws on her background in psychology as well as stage and screen performance to ensure speaking and consulting engagements are highly informative, actionable, and entertaining. As one of the relationships expert on Channel 9's multi-logi nominated Married at First Sight in Australia and E4's Married at First Sight in the UK, Mel has been a regular fixture on Australian and UK TV for the past five years. So if you think you weren't born with confidence, it's time for a reframe. To step beyond imposter syndrome, a crisis of self-belief or deficit of bravery with this empowering and practical chat to making friends with your fear and building the skills of confidence in every aspect of your life. It's such a great episode, so let's get right into it. Welcome, Mel, to the podcast. I'm so excited to have you. Oh, thanks, Christina. I'm really excited to be here. Let's get into it. Yes, I can't wait. So much to talk about. But before we jump in, I would love to ask you a question that I ask every guest that I have. And that is, did you have a dream as a child, something you wanted to do or have or perhaps become? Yes, I did. And I'm very excited to share that I'm actually living it. I love that. The magnitude of that is not lost on me. So as a little kid, all I ever wanted was to be on TV. (laughs) That was my thing. I have a a strong performing arts background and I was the kid who was always organising other kids into a play, writing the script, doing the costumes, giving them direction, the little producer, the whole thing. That's always been my world and my place where I feel most happy and I have spent a lot of time on the stage as a child and and adolescent and for me you know I was always passionate about people and psychology and so on so the idea that I could actually live both dreams blend somehow blend the idea of psychology and well-being with performing was just the ultimate and 
I can now say I get to do that every day. So it's pretty wonderful. That is so amazing to hear. Congratulations, first of all. And also congratulations on your book. And I can't wait to get into that. But I loved reading in your book that you actually dream really big. And then uh, you ask yourself, what would I want to do or be if there were no barriers to my success. And it's very similar to what I often ask the people who do my course or read my book, what would you do if you knew you couldn't fail? And something that I always ask myself, because that really pushes us to do things that perhaps we might not be confident to do yet, but actually we kind of grow a little seed. We have listeners all over the world, so not everyone in the world might know about you yet. So I'd love for you to just share a little bit about your journey. Sure. I'm a former psychologist. So I spent 20 years as a psychologist in Australia and the Middle East and Asia. And a big part of my focus was working with people in organizations. So I was very much focused on sort of the more corporate professional side of things, did a lot of coaching, running workshops, all about how people could really cut through fear and limitations and overcome barriers in order to live the life that they wanted to live. So in many cases, that was about progressing in their career. But so often I found that those conversations that I'd have with people would broaden out. Sure, we'd start about, you know, how do I speak up to my boss or how do I put my ideas forward more assertively? But it would become bigger and it would be more about, okay, this is my overarching life goal. I want to achieve this in my relationships or my travel. And, you know, so it became much, much bigger for me than just talking to people about their careers. And so often I found I'd end up having conversations with people about their interactions with other people. So whether that was their teammates or, you know, the the power dynamics within the organisation or was it about dating? Was it about relationships and intimacy? And that's sort of where my my real passion for talking about relationships came from. And this was all happening in parallel with me being single. I was single throughout my entire 30s. So for me, I was all focused on my career and travel and business and was really putting my own relationships on the back burner. And there was this incredible mirroring process I noticed in my clients. Well, they say you attract the clients you most need to learn from. And I think this was so true for me. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, it's so incredibly powerful if you can just open up your mind and your eyes and see it and and, and say, okay, there are lessons here for me. And, you know, for me, it was very much about, I guess, awareness that there was a need to put my focus on a number of other things um, that were going to serve me long term, not just my career. Mm, Love that. So your book, The C Word, which is all about confidence, what made you actually write the book? I became very aware, very young, that there was a difference between boys and girls, (laughs) stating the obvious. But for me, the, the difference I noticed was that, you know, the boys were always really comfortable taking risks and putting themselves forward and, you know, being the first one to try something new and girls less so. And it didn't really sit well with me. Because, you know, I innately am very adventurous and very driven and, you know, I am someone who likes to constantly challenge myself. And so I carried, you know, this with me throughout my work and development professionally and just this awareness that, you know, of all the many, many gender differences there are, the one that became most interesting to me was this confidence gap. And it was a piece of research actually conducted by Hewlett-Packard that really 
I guess, solidified my my interest in this. And it was a piece of research where they, they had a group of men and a group of women and got them both to look at a job description and to go through the points in that JD and make a decision about how well they met the criteria for that job and to decide whether or not they wanted to put themselves forward for that job. And what they found is that on the whole, men needed to meet about 60% of that criteria and then they would put themselves forward. Whereas the women, well, what percentage do you think the women had to meet? <laughs> it was 100, Christina. It was 100%. Oh, wow. The trend was that women, the, the women in this study would not actually even apply for the job unless they met all of the criteria. They would say to themselves, oh, no, I, I couldn't do that. I couldn't possibly do that. Whereas the men would look at that 40% gap and go, yeah, I'll take that leap. I'll back myself. 40%, no worries. I can do that. And so for me, this was just so powerful, just such a strong, tangible example of what I was kind of observing. And it just made it so clear to me that it was something I had to investigate further in order to understand it, but also to start changing it. Wow, that's really powerful. It's so interesting. And um, it's I actually watched the uh, movie Embrace Kids by Taryn Brumfit and last night, and it was so amazing in terms of often the difference between boys and girls in terms of confidence. And I'm, I'm really hoping that that will change and no doubt it will with your book and, and obviously the film as well. You say in the book that the key to navigating our way towards meaningful impact is found in three powerful C words. So confidence, courage, and competence. Can you tell us a little bit about that? I really love the interaction between courage and confidence. And something that occurred to me early in in writing this book was that you can't develop confidence unless you first step into courage. So I made this realization that courage is actually a stepping stone to confidence. So that idea of expanding your comfort zone, and I believe in doing this quite gradually and gently for women particularly. I see a lot of messages out there about just jump in the deep end, you know. You see all these things on Instagram saying things like everything you want is just on the other side of fear. And, you know, I think a lot of those messages resonate for some people and and probably more so for men than women. But for women, we innately are drawn to opportunities to feel a little safe, a little secure, and to connect and belong and to, you know, relate to other people. Those are the things that fill up our cup in many cases. So for me, the idea of doing courage in a more feminine way was really appealing. So I don't talk about getting out of your comfort zone, because of course, that means getting into the anxiety zone. And no one learns when they're anxious. So I like the idea instead of expanding your comfort zone and bringing new experiences in. It's really another way of looking at baby steps or in psychology, we call it graded exposure, you know, not ripping the bandaid off, but just very gradually broadening out your comfort zone so that you can start to feel more comfortable with new things. Let's say you're on a weight loss journey and the idea of going into a gym is really daunting, really scary and intimidating. Going to that gym would mean leaving that comfort zone and stepping into an anxiety zone. Probably not going to serve you. What if instead you stayed home and got an exercise bike and started doing some online classes at home? This is a really 
clear and quite practical example of expanding your comfort zone. So you're still there, but you're bringing new things into your comfort zone that are going to start expanding your world. So this is sort of what I talk about in terms of how we do courage, but also to do it in a smart way. So smart courage for me is about really balancing the left and right brain or the emotional and the rational. So making decisions as you step into bravery that firstly are intellectually savvy. They've got to be smart. You know, you've got to think it through. Is taking this step into courage going to actually move me a step closer to the goal that I want to achieve in life? Is it going to serve me? Is it a positive step? And then you need to really think that through and balance it out with the emotional impact. So what will stepping into courage mean for me? Do I have the supports in place, for example, to make sure that I'm going to be okay? If I take this bold step, what's the impact going to be on other people? So really thinking about that social awareness and impact as well. So that's really courage. And that's where, in my experience with with clients and also with myself and, you know, in life in general, that's where you can start to build self-efficacy, which is really just that belief that I can do this new thing because I've done it before or I've done a version of it before. So logically, I know that I've got some of the skills I need to do this thing. So that starts to build into confidence, which really for me, the way I define confidence is self-esteem and self-efficacy. So self-esteem is a term a lot of our listeners will be familiar with. And I think it's maybe overused in some ways and sometimes misinterpreted. Sometimes it's used interchangeably with confidence. But self-esteem is really that emotional sense, that belief that I deserve happiness, I deserve success. And when I look in the mirror, I actually quite like what I see. I'm okay with who I am as a person. So it's that okayness that really is about a healthy self-esteem. And when that sits next to self-efficacy, so you're not just saying I deserve success, you're saying, and I know how to do it. I know how to get myself there. It's that real tangible belief in my skills and ability to do this thing. When those two things work together, that's where confidence starts to build. And what you start to notice is when you start to sit in that real authentic confidence, you can start to get into flow. And this is where, you know, your competence becomes fluid. So you can really start to perform at that optimal level, not at high levels, because I think there's a time and a place for high levels of performance, but it's not sustainable. So ideally, I like the idea of optimal performance, which is very dynamic. It could be different every day and at different phases of the day, but performing to a level that is optimal for you to look after your well-being, but also to get the results you want. I so agree with that, to really just taking small steps. And there's a great quote, which I probably say every podcast, you don't have to be great to start, but you have to start to be great. It's a Sig Ziglar quote, but one of the stories that I read in your book where there was a person that you coached and she started really small and eventually just became super healthy and then met the man of her life. And it was just really inspiring. So, so, so many great case studies in your book as well to get us to really um, see that it's possible to start smaller by just expanding your comfort zone. So love, love, love that. I also love that courage emerges when you want is bigger than your fear. So if I look at my own courage journey, uh, public speaking, I think most of us 
do not love that until you <laughs> you've um, done it a few times. And for me, starting a podcast was like terrifying because English is my second language, and you know I have a creative mind, and often just start taking notes and I forget about what we're talking about. Starting a business, I had no idea. I'd never run a business, and so starting a business was also something that didn't come naturally to me. So, what could our listeners do to kind of clarify what they want and then you know step into that courage? Yes, I really love this sentiment as well, and it's something that really resonates deeply for me. I mean, if you just visualize a set of scales, you know, the old fashioned scales, and on one side, you've got the thing you really want in life. And this often, for many people is a higher purpose. You know, if there's something you're working toward that is bigger than yourself, or maybe something that is just so deeply connected to your values, it's part of your identity. So something that's really, really fundamentally important to who you are and where you're going. Then on the other side of the scales, you have the things you're scared of. So there's essentially the things that are, well, often they're limiting beliefs and, and they're often a set of stories that you're telling yourself that are likely to stop you from getting what you want. So the idea here is that when the thing you want is stronger and heavier than the thing you're scared of, that's when you can be courageous because you can rise above the fear When you've got something that is so much more important to you than fear, it's easier to get past the fear. I really noticed this when I went through my IVF journey. The thing that I really wanted was to be a mum. And that was such a strong drive for me. By the time I stepped into that massive scientific experiment that is IVF, I was absolutely at one with my vision crystal clear. Nothing was going to take me off that path. But of course, I had all these fears because I'd had a miscarriage and I was 41 at the time, you know, even right down to fears of having to, you know, jab myself with a needle every day and changes in my body. And there were so many fears and fear of failure, of course, floating around. I think what enabled me to be in that courageous space and to really sit with the free-floating anxiety that was very much a part of it. The thing that enabled me to do that and to get through it and to actually in some ways enjoy the process was this higher purpose, this vision of what I wanted. You know, I did a lot of yoga and meditation and visualization during this time and just honed in on seeing myself as a mum and having a, a little child with me and really hooking into that really strong emotion of that vision. And it made it so much easier for me because it's essentially a higher purpose. I absolutely love that. And something that I do actually, sometimes with the smallest thing, if I have a new habit, so I have a little habit club where we choose a new habit for every 66 days or every 30 days, whatever people choose. And it's so exciting when you decide something new. So this could be, you know, start running or meditate every day, whatever it is. And then we get excited for the first few days and then you kind of get why you're doing it. So I always do a, why am I doing this document? And it's a simple little you know you write whatever why you're doing this and then you read it every day because you know that's why I think most of the new year's resolutions are forgotten within five days because you kind of you get excited and then life throws something to us then we forget it so I I love that courage really emerges when you want is bigger than you fear so thank you for sharing that So, so many great things in your book that people can learn from 
I love how you actually love journaling and there's so many great exercises. I haven't done because the book just got out. So <laughs> I haven't had a chance to do all the exercises yet, but I cannot wait because I love putting pen to paper. And, you know, I feel like you can never do enough of those kind of exercises, even my own exercises that I've done a million times, because we evolve and we are a new version of ourselves if we do the work. So what do you find important in the practice of actually not just reading the book, but actually doing the exercises? It really is a very much a doing book, you know, as you, you've probably noticed if you've had a look at it. Yes, there's there's stories in there and there's there's information and skill building opportunities. But really, the I think the power of this book is in the exercises, the journaling exercises. And a lot of these come from, you know, my practice with clients or working with groups. They're activities that have that I've seen results with. So I have so much confidence in them, so much faith that, you know, they, they will actually create change in people's lives. But fundamentally, that the purpose of the journaling exercises in the book is to build self-awareness. This, I think, is just one of the most powerful, powerful traits that, that we can develop is to be self-aware. And, you know, it's not naturally inbuilt for most people. We aren't naturally reflective people, I think, particularly in this very busy, cluttered life. We're bombarded with messages on social media and in the media and in life and family. And, you know, we live really big, cluttered lives and there isn't often time. We don't often create time to self-reflect and to stop and go, hmm, am I on the right path here or am I doing things that are actually moving me toward my goals or away from them? Am I doing things that are impacting other people and my relationships positively or are they undoing things? So these kind of questions that enable you to stop for a moment and just focus in and be critical, and I don't mean that in a judgmental way, I just mean that in a thinking way, you know, to put your your thinking cap on and really look at the way that you think So we call this metacognitions, which is thinking about the thinking, which can really help you to identify patterns in your thinking. You know, so much of of what I talk about in this book relates to cognitive processes or the way that we think and the impact that that has on the way that we feel and then ultimately on what we do. So for me, so much of personal change comes back to the fundamental piece of how do you talk to yourself? And journaling is just such a brilliant way to get that unconscious stuff up into the conscious mind and down onto the page so you can examine it. You know, it makes it less automatic. It gives you more control over it. You know, if you're aware of those messages that come up for you in certain situations, then you can be mindful in the moment, recognize them and change them, which will ultimately change the decisions you make and the outcomes you have in life. So I find it incredibly powerful. Over the last, I think, 20 plus years, I always asked about work, about work-life balance and how I managed to do what I did and not get burnt out. And <laughs> I always say journaling and people just laugh and they say, yeah, right. But I'm like, no, <laughs> I read The Artist's Way which by Julia Cameron. I just took a couple of things out of that book and one was The Morning Pages. And I've been doing them now. Like, you know, there's obviously days where I miss them, but it's very rare because it's it's become part of my morning ritual now. And I often solve my my issues, my problems, my, you know, if I'm if I'm struggling with something, I can write about it for two weeks. And it's, it's all of a sudden I'm like, yes, now I know what I need to do. 
for anyone who's listening, and I know there's a lot of people who do the morning pages, your exercises are brilliant to do in your morning pages because just to reflect on one of your questions and then, you know, write three pages about it is is amazing. So so, uh, love, love, love that you encourage people to journal as well. There is a chapter about imposter syndrome. (laughs) How do we become the boss of our imposter? You know, the, the most interesting thing that I discovered in doing the research for that chapter was that men and women experience imposter syndrome equally. You know, despite the fact that men are on the whole that, that men present as more confident than women, they experience imposter syndrome just as frequently as we do. So I thought that was really interesting. And I guess testament to the fact that it's just part of the human condition. I think about it from an evolutionary perspective. You know, if you go back to our old caveman and woman days, our our minds had to be absolutely focused on risk in our environment. You know, we had to be looking for threats to us. So our brain is still very naturally and very much geared and wired toward looking at threat and things that we need to be fearful of in our environment. That's where we naturally go. So it's not surprising that this has evolved over time. But I guess the modern day version of imposter syndrome is very much about you know, the comparisonitis that many of us suffer. And of course, social media amplifies this. Seeing a very filtered version of someone else's life can make us feel so incredibly insecure about ours because we're, you know, comparing someone's finished product with our work in progress. Doesn't help. Now, in terms of how we can combat imposter syndrome. I have a number of different, you know, examples of of how we can do this, but maybe I'll just draw on one for us to sort of talk about now. Something that can be quite powerful is the idea of a fantasy. When when I've been talking to people over the years about imposter syndrome, something I've learned is that it's very common for them to fall into the trap of having daydreams about being exposed. So these are pretty dark negative daydreams or fantasies. So, you know, you're about to go into a meeting and present your ideas to some peers. Before you go in, you allow your mind to go into this really ugly daydream that you walk in there and you try to speak, people speak over you, maybe someone laughs at you, maybe someone says to you, you really don't know what you're talking about, you don't deserve to be here, you burst into tears and run out. You know, something like that where obviously that is just setting yourself up for failure. And this is the type of story and often vision that feeds imposter syndrome. And, you know, it can be quite self-indulgent because it is an old, as in, old brain way of thinking, it can feel quite comfortable at first because it is a form of thinking that is that we are naturally wired for. So it takes more effort and more work to actually pull yourself up and go, actually, that fantasy is not serving me. That's going to set me up for failure. I'm going to change it up. So I like the idea of the recognition fantasy. And so this flips that fantasy or daydream on its head. And this is the idea. Let's say you're sitting at your desk and you've got something going on this afternoon. Maybe it's that same meeting. What would happen if you started to play out a different movie in your mind and started imagining that you go into that meeting, you make your suggestion, everyone around the table is listening. They're hanging off your every word. Their eyes are 
absolutely focused on yours. They're nodding, they're smiling, they're taking notes, and then they start asking questions and they start helping you delve deeper and really brainstorm out this idea and they're building on it and it becomes this incredible collaborative process and you walk out of that meeting like you're walking on air because it's become a real success for you. So swapping out an exposure fantasy for a recognition fantasy can be a really, really powerful way to combat the imposter syndrome. Mm, I use that for public speaking, actually. <laughs> I think most of us do not like because it's you, especially if it's no response from the audience. And then sometimes you don't even see the audience if the lights are really bright, depending on it. Yeah. But um, I used to visualize being in the bar after with my best friend and just feeling great. So knowing that, that if I could just make it a difference to one person, that's all I really cared about. Because I'm thinking if, you know, if I can, if there's 500 people in the audience, I might not reach everyone, but if I can reach one person, that's better than not being here at all. So visualizing the end going well, but also just saying that if I, you know, even if you could just get one point across, that's better than not being there at all. So starting small. A lot of our listeners here are big dreamers and um, self-doubt is the number one that I hear about when I ask about what people's dreams are. So um, I have an online course where we identify what our dreams are and then work on them. And I have never actually come across a dream yet that I don't think is possible. So for anyone listening, like with self-doubt and not having the courage to take the step, what's your tips to kind of get started on, on the journey to create your dreams? Well, the first step I would say is to make an identity shift. And you can do this in quite an intentional way. It's a bit like playing a little trick on your mind. So let's say your dream was to write a book. The very first step is rather than saying, I'm going to write a book, and then I will be a writer. You could say, I'm writing a book and I'm becoming a writer. It's a subtle shift, but it's about making this dream part of your current identity. You know, something that I did years and years ago, and this is a bit cheeky, but it totally worked for me, was back in the days when business cards were still a thing, I had printed on my business card, speaker, and I had never uttered a word on a stage professionally in my life. <laughs> I'd never spoken professionally, but I knew that I could do it. And I brought that future dream into my present by making that statement. And it was so incredibly powerful. And I found that I'd hand the card to people and it would open up a conversation about speaking. <laughs> and- I love it. Guess what? It led to speaking opportunities. And before I knew it, I was actually speaking on stage and it came to fruition. So, you know, that identity piece is so incredibly powerful because it shifts you from hoping that one day you might live this dream to actually becoming that work in progress. Absolutely. And, you know, when you do that identity shift too, it's like you're asking yourself, what would a speaker do? Instead of instead of just sitting there waiting, one day I will, it's like, okay, well, if I now am a speaker, what do I need to do to kind of get that going? So yeah, I love that. It's really, really great. Thank you for that. 
in your book, you also talk about the positive no. I'd love for you to share because I think that's so brilliant because especially in today's world, I think it's so easy to fill our days. Like there's rarely any time where you just are bored because you can always get your phone and just get a bit of a dopamine hit. So I think having a positive no is really great. So can you please share a little bit about that? Oh, I love this. And I can't take credit for this. This was developed by William Urey out of Harvard. It's basically a way to deliver no in a way that maintains your integrity and your relationships. So let's look at an example. Let's say we're coming up to spring carnival. Let's say you've got a big goal in your own life and you're saving for a house and your friends come to you and say, hey, we would love you to come to this race day. It's going to be glamorous. There's going to be hats and champagne and gorgeous men and la, la, la. And, you know, it's all very appealing to you. So how do you say no to that? The first step is to say yes to yourself. So what is it that's most important to me right now? Well, I have a savings goal and I want to be able to have a deposit for my house at the end of this year. So the first thing I'm going to do is say yes to that. And that's really an internal yes. You don't say that out loud to anybody. That's just an internal thing. Then you say no to the friend, a simple no, but then you follow it up with an alternative yes. So you might say, for example, look, I'm not going to come to the races, but where are you guys meeting up after the races? I'll meet you there for a drink. Or you might say, how about you all come around to my place for breakfast before the races and I'll give you all a a Bellini or some champagne and then you can go on your way. So you can see there it's this process of saying yes, no, yes. And by doing that first step, you're maintaining your integrity and your promise to yourself. And by doing the final step, you're maintaining the relationships and, you know, ensuring that there is an alternative outcome. And I just love this. I think it's relevant to so many situations and it's really something to experiment with. Yeah, I often think about that when um, when uh, I often do like, you know, three months or a year or longer without alcohol. And it's so interesting because it's such a debate with if you don't drink and it's 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 almost like um, like it's uh, it's it's really interesting because it's like you know, I don't question why people drink, so why why the opposite? But um, having that kind of approach for anyone, because I know there's a lot of people who are struggling with that because they get so much pressure because they, they are perceived not to be as fun and having that uh, kind of approach is a, really, is, is a really good way. So thank you for sharing that technique. What kind of habits do you think we need to develop in terms of getting more confidence? I think the baby steps approach is a really good one. You know, I talk to a lot of people who are on a mission to build their confidence. And, you know, in terms of a really good habit to build, particularly if we're talking about social confidence, a really good one is to turn every opportunity or at least let's say three per day into an opportunity to expand your comfort zone a little bit. You know, let's say your ultimate goal is to do public speaking, but you're miles from that and you feel really underconfident at this point. What if three times a day you started up a little conversation with someone that you wouldn't usually talk to? So maybe it's the barista, maybe it's someone you're standing next to in the lift or in line for something. Some people might say this is doing something that scares you every day. I don't like to use that language. I don't think it's really helpful. But if you could think of it in terms of doing something that is just slightly expanding your comfort zone every day, 
just becomes part of your everyday practice. You'll find that the barriers that you're putting in front of yourself towards that goal of public speaking become less and less and just gradually start to become less and less important and will ultimately disappear. This has been so inspiring and I have a couple of shorter questions, but I just wanted to ask you for the final question. Knowing what you know now, what kind of advice would you give yourself, say, in your late teens? It's always a hard question, but whatever comes to mind. It is, isn't it? I think I would say to her, don't listen to the doubters. And ultimately, I, I ended up doing that. I ended up stopping listening to the doubters. But back then, I really did listen to them. And often, as we were saying at the start of our chat today, I had big dreams as a kid. And often I was told to slow down or stop being such a dreamer. You know, that was often said to me in my family in a very jokey way, but it did cut through. It did get to me. And I think I would say to my teenage self, don't worry about that stuff. Stay on mission, stay on your own path because you're going to get there. Mm, Beautiful. I love morning rituals. I wonder if you have one. I would love to say that I do, Christina. <laughs> I admire people that do. So you've just gone up even more in my estimation. <laughs> I love that about you. I'm not very good at consistency. I know this about myself. Hang on. Let me reframe that. Let me take my own advice and say I'm becoming better at consistency. <laughs> But I have found it's something that I can struggle with because I do like a shiny thing and I tend to go off on (laughs) distracted little journeys when I see a shiny thing. So I would love to hear from you how you do that and how you maintain it consistently. Um, Knowing that you are located in Sydney and you have Bondi around the corner, I think that's the most perfect time, especially this time of year, to get up early and go for work. I was in Bondi actually last week. There's just nothing better than going for a walk in the morning and especially there and, you know, me living in Melbourne and wanting the whole family to move to Sydney, but no one else wants to do that. (laughs) It's my dream and I will make it happen somehow one day, but that's further down the line. But in the meantime, I spend a lot of time up in Sydney and it's so beautiful. So I love getting up early. And I also think that when you have big dreams and a full life, so a lot of our listeners have families or big careers and finding the time to actually work on your dreams, I find mornings are the easiest because you're less likely to be interrupted by family members or people who want you or your boss or whatever. So for me, it's, and this actually, I've never been a morning person as a, as a child or teenager, or I worked in hospitality. So that was like not even heard of, but since I had kids, I realized that that is my special time. And now I love my morning so much that I just love getting going to bed early so I can actually get up early. So it's not for everyone, but I think it's more about actually finding a ritual, you know, even if that starts at, you know, 12 midday or, you know, it's a night ritual. But I think just having that ritual where you just have some time for you because life goes so quickly and all of a sudden, I don't know about you, I feel like this year it goes so fast. I cannot believe that we're already, you know, spring for some of us and uh, autumn or fall for some and it just goes so quickly. So having that little ritual. But thank you for sharing that and maybe something we'll chat when we catch up next week. Yes, I'd love that. All our listeners love reading, so no doubt they will be all reading your book. But I would love to know if you have a favorite book that isn't your own. I absolutely love The Authority Gap. It's by Marianne Seagart, and she does a lot of work with the BBC over in the UK and beautiful journalist, incredibly smart woman. And she conducted all of this research globally to look at 
the difference between men and women in the way that we show up in authority. So you can imagine lots of similarities between her book and mine, and she very much inspired a lot of the work that I do. And, you know, I've certainly referred to her in my book as well. And I really loved the way that she talks about authority, probably similar to the way I talk about confidence, as just another skill, just another skill that you can learn. And, you know, there are there are ways that you can build it slowly and, you know, start to develop that authority. And, you know, you can just add it to your daily practice. So very inspiring for me. And and certainly I would love to meet her one day and talk about it. It sounds like you guys will be the perfect combination. (laughs) Yeah, I hope so. (laughs) Well, this has been so inspiring. First, thank you for all the amazing work that you have been doing and are doing. And for anyone who is um, watching you on television, no doubt there will be lots of exciting things coming up. But thank you for coming on the podcast, but also for all the amazing things that you're doing to make the world a better place. Oh, it's such a pleasure. And thank you for the chat. I've loved it. So inspiring. Oh, thank you. Wow, that was so inspiring. I think Mel is such an amazing human and she's inspiring and she's funny and she's entertaining. Make sure you get a copy of her book. And I, of course, would love to know what you got out of this episode. So please let me know in the Facebook group. I will link to it in the show notes, or you can just go to Facebook and search for Dream Life Podcast and you can join the group there. I will be back next week with another episode. So don't forget to subscribe. And I would love for you, if you haven't done it yet, to uh, rate us and give us a review. I really, really appreciate it because by that we will reach more people and hopefully inspire 101 million people to write down three dreams and go and chase them. I'll see you next week. 